Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkulam, and we're going to talk about the big stories that have appeared this week on thisiscommonsense.org. Paul writes a column five days a week there, and the columns this week are The Big Lesson on Monday, Message or Money on Tuesday, Mount Maddow Blows on Wednesday, The Pushers on Thursday, and the freedom to say Jesus on Friday. Today is Friday the 12th of 2021. We're going to cover the week, and let's get to it. We didn't have time or inclination to do the big story of the week, in my opinion. The big story of the week has to be the Rittenhouse case. And yes. Have you ever written about that? You know, we mentioned him this week, and which one was it? Uh, um, it was not. It wasn't about him, but he was just mentioned uh, briefly. I referred to him, I guess, on. Uh, it was on Wednesdays. The Mount Meadow blows. Yes, yes, and just talking about how the the media takes different things, but. Um, Let's let's do that, because I think uh, in just looking at the scripts this week, Tuesday, we talked about messenger money, the New Jersey election where uh, uh, Edward uh, Durr, uh, who spent like two thousand dollars on his campaign, beats the Senate president. And you should go read it, uh, you know, drop everything right now. No, listen to us. But then uh, that's messenger money at thisiscommonsense.org, and that's November 9th, Tuesday's piece. And it, it, it's important because there's two things here, two uh, myths that this particular election explodes. And one of them is this myth that somehow these people in office are loved. You know, the, the voters just love them so much, and that's why they keep returning them to office. In this case, clearly this guy has been in, he's the longest serving uh, leader of a chamber of the New Jersey legislature in history. One of the most powerful, you know, two or three most powerful politicians in the state. And he gets beat by someone spending almost no money that people knew, but certainly, you know, didn't hear a whole lot about. So obviously they were looking for somebody else. So the fact that someone gets elected Maybe because, hey, we don't like him or her, but we like him or her better than the other him or her. And of course, it, we don't have to look at too many presidential elections before. Oh, yes. Oh, exactly. So that's one of the things, this idea that people love their incumbent. I heard in term limits a lot of times they just want to knock out the other incumbents, which, of course, is, is a worthwhile thing to do. But that they love their own incumbent. They do not. Uh, in many, many cases, I would argue most cases. And it's just that incumbents have so many advantages that a lot of times very credible, you know, powerful potential challengers just decide, you know, I don't, I don't want to go up against that machine. I'll wait until there's an open seat or I won't run for office. I'll have a wonderful life instead. Um, the other myth that explodes is that money decides elections. Um, Two years ago, four years ago, uh, let me correct myself, four years ago, the teachers union in New Jersey spent $5 million 
to try to unseat this guy. And he won by 18 percentage points. This time, his challenger spends like $2,000, shoots his campaign video that he puts up on YouTube on his iPhone or whatever Android or whatever phone, his smartphone. He was woefully outspent. And it just proves that message it has to be delivered in one way or another, although it can be sometimes with shoe leather and walking door to door um, or virally, but message beats money. And, uh, and that's it, it. We should be glad to know that. And we should not let people tinker with the First Amendment to try to stop big money when we know that there are ways to stop big money. But every single one that has been attempted by the people who are always, we've got to do campaign finance reform. Every time they try to stop big money, big money gets stronger and the rest of us get weaker and more silent. So anyway, I, I went into maybe more of that, but read it. It's interesting uh, story, I think. And uh, hopefully we've captured it correctly. And that's our, our kind of take on it. And there are links to, uh, to more information on that. But let's talk about Kyle Rittenhouse a little bit, because I spent much of this week uh, watching more TV than I usually watch. I was taking care of my mother. Um, and and so we we were sitting a, a good bit of, of the time. And uh, sometimes she likes to watch stuff. And, and sometimes I do, too. And I probably coerced her into, hey, Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Anyway, I saw his testimony. I saw very little else other than that was interesting. And so I Googled and, you know, watched some videos and, and this and that and read some stories. It's like with a lot of things, you know, we know the media is biased, but we still, if we hear it again and again and again and again, and we don't hear other facts and information that cuts against it, we tend to get sucked into kind of thinking there's probably something to that narrative because we've heard no other narrative. And and I guess I, I came into this thinking, boy, this sure is a dumb kid to take a gun into that situation. And, I, and I'm not sure I've totally backed off of that because I don't think I would have done the same thing. But this is one, a kid, uh, 17, now 18. Uh, I thought his testimony, I thought he was a pretty uh, uh, smart kid, not brilliant or anything, but just uh, with it and sincere. And he kind of broke down at one point, which I, I saw uh, somebody showing a bunch of different people's take on that. And some people saying, oh, it was a big fake or something. Well, if he was faking, uh, hyperventilating and stuff, he needs to, he's got a career in Hollywood uh, because I don't think it was fake. And I think he had a very, very traumatic uh, incident. And of course, there's also, uh, there's a picture of him saying uh, free as the F word, uh, wearing a shirt at a bar with a, uh, apparently some proud boys. That's what has been alleged. I don't, I haven't, I haven't delved into it enough to know if any of those allegations or all of them are true, but I've seen the picture of the shirt. And, and so that was used to kind of say, see, he's a, a bad guy. And of course, the case doesn't revolve around whether he's a bad guy or a good guy. It revolves around whether he was acting in self-defense or not. And I'll, I'll get to some of that. But um, and of course, most people have, have probably know more about this case than I do, because it's not one that I particularly delved into. But but so uh, he he 
certainly could have, you know, I could see someone who's in these situations and he's looking for support and, and wears a shirt that says, Hey, I, you know, I'm glad I'm free. I, I would be glad I was free too. Um, I wouldn't necessarily want to wear sure, the F word on it, but to each his own. And, and it's interesting because while none of that should be in, in court, in the, in the trial, I think the judge was correct to say, no, you're not bringing that picture in. The judge also did not allow them to bring in the criminal records of the people who were shot and injured in one case and in two cases shot and killed. And, um, and I think that was right, too. But we're not deciding as, as the public just the criminal law, whether Kyle Rittenhouse goes to jail and is found guilty of this charge or that charge or whatever. Um, we're, we have to decide what the world is that we're living in. And, and we can judge not only that particular criminal offense, but the broader implications of what's going on. And so I find out in Googling to find out a little bit more after watching this, you know, testimony during the day that these three people each have criminal records. And one of them has a criminal record from being, I believe it's 19 years old and having, well, basically raping nine and 11 year old boys, five incidents of it, convicted of it. Um, and, and that's pretty serious stuff. So it, it doesn't say that, um, look, if, if it wasn't self-defense and Kyle Rittenhouse killed someone, uh, not in self-defense, but as a murder, and that person is a terrible you know, human being, he's still guilty of murder and you still have to convict him. But to me, I kind of think that's interesting to know that here is someone who's out protesting and I, I'm going to just pull that word right back because, of course, the fact that he's out protesting is no big deal. He's out burning things and destroying things and he's got a gun and so on and so on and so on. Um, and so there's been all this focus on Kyle Rittenhouse and that he's some kid who do the gun. He wasn't legally supposed to have it. Um, although I, I, I'm now a little unclear as to whether he just wasn't supposed to have it in Illinois and he could have it in Wisconsin. There's been a lot made of the fact that he, cross state lines. Well, you know, Kenosha's on the Illinois-Wisconsin border. So it's not that hard to, to cross state lines if you live in Illinois, you know, three miles from, from there. But, but anyway, what was he doing there? And what kind of vigilante is he? And, and look, I, you know, I don't have exactly the same personality he has, but it seems like he's very interested in maybe being an EMT or being a policeman or, or saving people or helping people. And, and, and maybe there's some weird psychology behind all that. Who knows unless you know him. But it could just be a good psychology. I mean, it, it almost reminds me of the miracle on 34th Street where, where um, you know, the, the, uh, if you know that movie, there's a psychologist at uh, Macy's that decides that this one boy goes to him to be psychoanalyzed and, and he likes to play Santa Claus and so so he, uh, the, you know, the, the shrink tells him, hey, uh, that's just because you hate your father and you want to make up for it or something or other. And it kind of irritates Santa Claus. So, um, you know, he says maybe it's just that he wants to help people. Um, and, and so, look, it doesn't mean it was good judgment. 
it's just looking at the motivations. And I think after the testimony, it was pretty hard to see him as someone who went there with bad motivations. And, and that's important. And if you know the background, which of course I agree, the jury should not know the backgrounds of his victims who were victims. And the judge was probably right. One other point that people have argued about is the judge didn't want them referred to as victims. Well, that is, you're making a judgment about him if you're calling them victims. And, and it, you know, it's a semantic argument, maybe. I would look at it and say they were victims, but had they not been victims, they would have been victimizers. And, and so, you know, that's, that's what self-defense is all about. Yes, the person you shoot is then a victim of your, of your responding to them trying to victimize you. Um, and maybe, you know, look, I'm not a linguist. Maybe the linguist would say, well, no, technically the word, whatever. We know what we're talking about. And that is that, yes, these people are dead and we are not glad they're dead. We're sad, but we don't think they should have been able to kill Kyle Rittenhouse. And in one case, of course, it's out there. In one of the cases, the guy who's still alive admitted on the stand that he didn't shoot him until he was like three feet away with a gun pointed at him. And these people had threatened to kill him and so on. So, uh, you know, it's, if I were on the jury, he'd be found not guilty. In fact, if I were the judge, there may have been a directed verdict and a, and a, you know, or a mistrial and so on. And of course, part of the mistrial was an attorney trying to, you know, the prosecutor trying to get stuff into that record that appears very clearly to have been, you know, denied. And there are times in a trial when something gets opened up, it's denied, you can't go into that, but then some witness innocently mentions something about it. And maybe it's the other side's witness that they brought in. And now your honor, he just opened the door. I mean, if you've, if you've been forced because my wife likes uh, law and order, if you've been forced to watch them, they're always saying that because they like the door being open so they can prosecute better. Um, gosh, I hate that show. Anyway, uh, um, you know, it is the ultimate kind of the state always doing stuff, but prosecuting people. It's like, please stop prosecuting all the time. Anyway, uh, but I digress. The, the prosecutor also opened up the cross-examination of Rittenhouse by talking about his silence prior to the trial after being arrested and so on. And of course he did turn himself in. He tried to turn himself in in Wisconsin and then turn himself in in Illinois. And, you know, so it, this is a little different circumstances than a lot of cases like this. Um, and, but, but basically uh, he, he has a right of course to remain silent. And for a prosecutor to be attacking that right, and the, and the judge said something like, you know, this has been settled law for 40 or 50 years. And I thought, no, this has been settled law for 250 years. You know, I mean, this is, uh, this is it's closer to 250. It, it, this is, it was outrageous. And I liked that judge coming after him. And the other thing was, I've never seen this. And I'm not an attorney. I've spent more than my share of time in court, uh, sometimes personally, sometimes as part of some organization, usually in civil court there. That's always nice. I prefer civil court to criminal court. But I've, I've seen some of these proceedings and I have an interest in it. And I have never seen or heard of a judge 
reprimanding a prosecutor the way this judge reprimanded him. And in fact, on getting the information, trying to get this stuff into the record uh, against the judge's order, the prosecutor said, well, I just want you to know, Your Honor, my good faith thought was blah, 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 blah. And the judge said, well, that's complete bunk. And I don't believe it was in good faith. And you just don't hear that sort of thing too often. Um, the truth is they shouldn't have brought these charges. That's my view. And, and look, again, I've, I've seen his testimony. I've seen reports. I've read some stuff. I haven't watched this whole thing. And one of the things that people should realize is that so often what's reported in the media, what you hear, even on a case that's as high profile as this, you have to realize you're hearing things um, in the media and elsewhere that oftentimes the jurors are not hearing. And maybe there are cases where they should be hearing them. But most often, I think the, the, the courts are correct in keeping some of this stuff all out because you're, you're, you're saying, look, you didn't have a right to bring these extraneous things in that may make this person look bad, but had nothing to do with this crime that's being alleged. I'm with you. I've only seen parts of it, though. I, I saw that section. I also saw the surviving victim of Rittenhouse uh, who gave away pretty much the whole game in his testimony, which I thought was very interesting. He's also a yeah. A creep beyond measure, by the way. I think that that man is truly an evil person. I I have no I have no sympathy for any three of these guys. They're all evil people. There has been a response to this, saying which is kind of a let's get out of this individual case. And the the point I was trying to make is, unless you've seen the whole trial and heard all the evidence, and sometimes there's stuff floating out there that might prejudice you, and that's not supposed to come in, and it shouldn't come in. But unless you've heard it all, you're you're operating without knowing all the facts, and you ought to recognize that and and not jump to conclusions. And and of course, then there's people who've heard almost none of the facts, but want to basically say, look, if this was a Black Lives Matter person who went into a MAGA rally and shot three people, well, if the facts were the same as this that those people were attacking that person and so on and so on. Well, then of course the, the results should be the same. And if it's not the same, that's a big problem that we should solve. But it doesn't mean that Kyle Rittenhouse should be found guilty. The solution to bad law being oppressing a black person is not to let's oppress a white person to make it equal. That's not the goal. The goal is stop oppressing the black person. If a, if a Black Lives Matter person goes in and does the same thing and is, is treated this way and the same thing happens in reverse with it being Donald Trump people, then by golly, he better get off. And we have to create a society where we have a criminal justice system where that happens. Stop this tit for tat civil war. It's to, don't make Kyle Rittenhouse a 17 or 18 year old as tragic as the situation is. And as much as you might say, what an idiot, you can't convict him of murder when he's defending himself, no matter how much you, uh, you think he's an idiot or not. And, and don't think that that's somehow going to create a world of fairness to make this kid suffer because somebody else might have suffered wrongly somewhere else. 
that whole meme is out there a lot and it's bs it's it's a bad idea but another thing that's out there is that a lot of people apparently thought that these three gentlemen who were shot by rittenhouse were black or one of them was black none of them were black they were all white guys and uh, yes and and whether to the extent there were blm is of course kind of dubious but they were definitely undercover of the uh permission given to the rioters the, the state yes the local government did nothing to stop these riots of any meaningful sense you know tulsi gabbard came out and said that basically that who is really at fault are the authorities who should have protected life and limb and not left it to kyle rittenhouse and to other people ad hoc to to do so that has a consequence when the state refuses to protect rights those who uh normally don't aren't given much leeway to protect themselves i think you have all the leeway in the world because they, they complain about vigilantism on the part of rittenhouse well vigilantism was justified by the state not acting by governments not acting it's a very dangerous thing i mean that's then you've got and then you don't know that you don't have two mobs fighting each other we don't want i mean we don't want to become the weimar republic and that is what is happening when you i mean portland which most of the country even with all the the you know social media hate and everything else most of the country is not like portland oregon but in portland oregon it seems like for what years now um since donald trump was elected there are constantly fights and violence and you have to as the, as the great Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud. And, and you, we cannot allow this sort of violence because it does say to, to the average person, well, I need to be more able and more thinking about defending myself and, and defending my town. And the motivation here of Kyle Rittenhouse was not a bad motivation. It was to put out fires and to help people and and you can argue you went about it wrongly, but it was the right motivation. The motivation of the three victims was to burn stuff and destroy stuff. And 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 you could say, well, they were there to protest. Well, it left the protest field and went to the commit violence and, and criminal acts field. And that's got to be dealt with. And, you know, anybody on January 6th who committed crimes and acts of violence needs to be dealt with. I mean, this is it, it. This isn't like, well, you know, they are on the left, so let's go send the police. Or, well, they're they're on the right, let's go send the police. We have police to protect property and protect people, and increasingly, they're not doing it. I, I we wrote about this, Tim, back in 2016 after the Trump rally in San Jose. Um, and, you know, it, it just, it was so frightening to me to see people leaving that rally and being accosted, you know, elderly couples and slapping some hat off of some guy's head. And I mean, this is like you're living in Nazi Germany. This is crazy, pre-Nazi, you know, you're just getting there. And uh, it's it's insane, and we cannot let that be. And where was this? Where was the San Jose police? They were kind of told to don't, don't police. And and look, sometimes you you have to recognize. Okay, we don't have the force to to do. We have we have to do something less than we would do if we had enough force. 
and you make wise decisions about how to use what force you can effectively use and retreat. But see, when you do that, you're also on the phone going, hey, we need reinforcements because the idea of we're just going to let the mob run the town is not one of the choices. So it's and, and I think I'm saying this. I'm not Mr. You know, law and order. Go bust their heads. I don't want anyone's head busted. The best way to avoid busting heads is to have the force there to say, you know what? There's a way to protest. There's a way to do different things. But the second you go into violence, then I'm protecting everybody else's right and you're going to be arrested. And, and we've seen all of these things where almost no arrests. And you know, I just think <laughs> I'm the guy saying, go arrest them. But when people commit acts of violence, that's what you have to do. And property crimes too. You've seen the pictures of San Francisco and they're grabbing the merchandise and walking out the door like they, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. One of the things that uh, the lawyer in the Rittenhouse case, the pr prosecutor, I should say, was trying to emphasize, and we got Rittenhouse to admit, that he has no right to, to defend with deadly force property. And he made much of that. And this is a big, big deal for Democrats who don't believe that in defense very much anyway. But there's a problem here, is that police, when they defend private property or defend property of any kind, they're defending with deadly force. At some point, they have to. If they don't in this town and in many other towns this last year and a half, I think that that puts us in a, you might say, a special Lockean situation and Rittenhouse was acting in that sense. So I give him a lot of leeway. By the way, I didn't jump to conclusions on Rittenhouse. In fact, I annoyed most of my friends on Facebook and elsewhere by saying when, when and after it happened that I was just going to let the jury make the decision. And I didn't come out in defense of Rittenhouse until this last week. So it was the opening remarks by the prosecutor that I thought were so obviously, you know, the whole prosecutor's case. There was nothing to that. It was that he didn't have a case. It shouldn't have been made. It should, he should, Rittenhouse should not have been charged, as you said before. Yes. Now, Mount Maddow Blows was not about Rittenhouse. That was a throwaway line in the piece. Uh, Mount Maddow Blows was about something else. It was. Uh, it was about Russiagate. And I think really all the other uh, scripts this week, and I'll, I'll take one exception. The, the last one we'll talk about Fridays was, was well, I, I won't take the exception. They're all about our, our kind of massive big government control of what people say, and then political attacks that, that have the media presenting you know, amazing attacks on people that turn out to be complete BS. And of course, Rachel Maddow has just been on the Russia gate. You know, we say Russia, 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 that's, that's her thing. And yet it now comes out that everything they were relying on is a bunch of hooey and was made up by Democratic consultants involved with the Clinton campaign and this is the biggest scam. And of course, most of the media is going to downplay any, I mean, they're covering it, but not in the way they would cover it if it was, if it fit their narrative. And Rachel Maddow has, has not apologized for being completely wrong. She's trying to, you know, make excuses for it. It's, it, it is a huge problem that we have a media 
that is as partisan as the, the political parties and as corrupt as the political parties in terms of being willing. It's one thing to say, look, we're a Democratic news channel. We're a Republican news channel, conservative, liberal, progressive, whatever, and saying that and then covering from those angles. But even if you do that, you're not supposed to lie about stuff. You're not supposed to hype stuff that you have no evidence of. You know, Schiff, Adam Schiff is a congressman from California, Democrat. Um, you know, everybody knows of him. And, and uh, you know, at one point held up an envelope and said, I have evidence of Russian collusion. And stuff. He had nothing. And so why, why would you ever have that person on TV again? Unless he said, look, I'm really sorry. Here's, I, I had been drinking a lot that day. I, you know, whatever. Um, but it all seems to fit together with things like the pushers, which was Thursday's piece about Telegram, which is a, a new way, which I think I'm going to uh, start using, uh, of communicating and uh, communicating without on social media, without being censored. And of course, the New York Times is beside themselves that someone would want to communicate without people like the New York, the people who run the New York Times telling them what they can say or not. And, and uh, you know, we have come to a point of, of insanity in, in all of a sudden the left, which tended to be more pro-free speech, being so overwhelmingly anti-free speech and actively working to with public-private partnerships, big corporate part partnerships to censor what people can say. What every little person, all of us out here talking with our friends on Facebook, they want to come down with the force of big corporations seized with government interests and so on to smash us. That's the left liberal progressive help the little guy. The left that has always built itself, and, and sometimes it seemed like it was almost legitimate, always built itself as loving the little guy, and we're for the little guy. And yet they want to take all of us little guys and gals on Facebook, sharing our you know pictures of our kids and grandkids, and, and then posting some meme about this or that, or talking about medicine or politics or whatever. They, they hate big corporations, but they love the idea of big, giant corporations in bed with big, giant government being used to smash some little guy and stop him from saying something on Facebook to his 27 or 158 friends or whatever. That's where the left is now. And, and that doesn't, doesn't say that the right's always good on this stuff, but they, they've kind of just by being battered over the head by the left started to stumble toward where's freedom of speech uh, and say here somewhere. And, and so th that's where, that's where the, the left is and groups like the ACLU, which I remember, what was it? 40, 40 maybe 50 years ago oh. in Skokie. Def yes, defending the rights of neo-Nazis to march through a largely Jewish 
community in Skokie, Illinois, which is where I, I've had a brother and sister-in-law and nieces who've lived in Skokie for, for decades. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a nice area and, and, you know, you hate the, look, I hate the neo-Nazis, but I love free speech. And who hates free speech? Well, neo-Nazis do. So, oh, they were using it. Well, yeah, they are, but they got nothing out of it. Did, did, did allowing a march in Skokie mean that neo-Nazis like gained lots of converts? No, it didn't. And what it did send was a message that we have freedom to speak, no matter how obnoxious, which means all of us feel free to speak. And it means we can have robust debates and we can start to respect each other because you know what? You're going to hear some stuff you don't, you don't like, you don't agree with. That's a sign of a healthy society, a society where you only hear what has been approved truth is not a healthy society. And, and I'm not sure that's the majority in America anymore, but we're going to keep talking about it until it is, because it's just, that is so frightening. We also, uh, the other one we haven't, well, there's two we haven't mentioned, and and uh, and we've kind of gone to where we're talking about one or more than others. Let you folks go read them. You can go read these, but it's uh, uh, we'll just mention it a little bit. The big lesson, which was Monday's piece, um, is just about how much freedom we have handed away in this pandemic, and that we better find a way to get some of it back and and start realizing you. If you hand away your freedom in a crisis, you're going to find a lot of crises happening. Crises happening, and so go read that. The big, uh, the big lesson, not the big lie, although it's kind of a lesson maybe about some big lies. And then I just wanted to say a couple words because I've gotten such a good response from today's piece, the freedom to say Jesus. And I wrote today's piece not not to you know not because. I'm thinking everybody should rush to school and say Jesus. They should say Jesus if they want to. And they should not feel that they have to say it if they don't want to. That's what freedom's all about. But I have to say everything I know about Jesus, I think he sees it the same way. That people should be free to say his name if they want to say it. And I don't see him forcing anyone to ever say it who doesn't want to. That's not just the Christian view. That's the free view. And there's some connection. I mean, people came from that idea of free will and got to, you know, freedom. The, <laughs> that, that, that's a good thing. And uh, this is a story about a, a kid. And, and the reason I think it's so important is not just about the religious freedom aspect of it. It's about the way power works in our society. So here's a kid. He's got cerebral palsy. Um, he's going to school. There's a talent show. He wants to be in the talent show. He likes music. He likes Christian music. And he wants to do a song that mentions Jesus. It's a Christian song. And the school says, no. And his mom says, I'm calling the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a group that takes a lot of these religious freedom cases 
And they send a letter to the school district and the school district in what's called a New York minute decides to toss this attitude that he can't do it and says, oh, oh, no, oh, we're folding. He can. Yes, he can. And what it tells you is, and, and maybe this was all an innocent mistake. I kind of, kind of like the, like the judge in the Rittenhouse case on that. But, but let's say maybe it was all an innocent mistake. These mistakes happen. But what do we see? We see that you don't get to exercise your freedom of religion. And look, if, if there's a kid with cerebral palsy or any other disease or is healthy in every way, shape or form, who's Muslim or, or you know, uh, Zoranastrian, I'm not going to be able to say that now, but, but whatever the faith is and they want to sing their song, they can sing their song. And, and so, but, but they can't do it so well unless they have a lawyer. And that's what we've got to change. These school districts should darn well know better than this. And of course, the fact that they folded so quickly when they got a letter from a, a law firm that would do something, or you know, public interest uh, legal effort that would do something, they folded immediately because they knew that their policy was unconstitutionally violating this kid's rights. That should not be just... Okay, well, now that's, that's solved. Good. No. Stop violating their rights. And there needs to be some sort of follow-up that says, you know what? You're no longer in your position because you violated somebody's rights knowingly. And I'm not looking for every time anything happens, you know, some tribunal comes in and, and throws everyone out. They ought, we need to develop a system in which this sort of miscalculation about what people's rights are does not happen all the time, happens very rarely. And someone who, who makes that mistake says, gee, I am so sorry. That will never happen again. Now, a number of things come to mind on this, but I really like John F. Brennan's response, uh, his letter to the editor on this. Did you see that? I did see that. I thought. Uh, I thought actually, uh, uh, there were there were two responses, and I thought both of them were um, very good. And, and the first one was actually just Pat saying, "Both mother and son are remarkable people, and we should all be proud of them." And and we should be proud of them. And this mother did. I know nothing about this mother, but I like her because she stood up for her son. And and. You know, if if government is going to always do the right thing without us standing up and say, do the right thing or else, we're sadly mistaken. But um, but John Brennan, do you want to read John Brennan's or the misunderstanding for the free exercise and establishment clauses by the school administrators and governmental officials is intentional and near universal. And that's the that's the thing that interested me was his first sentence. Yes. And I'm not sure people understand the Establishment Clause at all. I've read lots of articles and, and lawyers debating the nature of the Establishment Clause, and I don't think they got it right. And there's certainly no danger at a school talent of show if one person has a Christian song and another person has a rap song about impregnating young women and then another person has a Hindu song. I mean, there's a lot of things that can go on that are accepted. 
and I am curious about what the vulgarity rules would be in school. Yes, yes, you, you be- could have other things come in that that blocked a certain song. But the truth is, those are very easily dealt with in my mind, which is it's up to the parents who are the customers because they're kids and if the kid is seven, you know, they're not really the one to make all the decisions. Um, and it's up to them. And if we had choice in education, it would make a big difference because then schools could teach morals and other things that many people think they ought to be teaching. And, and But we can't because it has to all be secular and, and down the road. But I, I think there's also a big mistake about separation of wall, uh, a wall of separation between church and state. And I think what Jefferson was arguing there was that we need to be so vigilant about any attempt to establish a state religion or to advantage one religion over another, that it is a brick wall that's not going to get passed through. I don't think he meant that there can never be a mention of God or that somehow we have to police people who are in public schools and not allow them to do anything. I mean, we've had schools that won't allow Christian groups to meet when they're allowing all kinds of other groups to meet who don't have anything particular to do with the school, except they're a public group who wants to use a public building. This is insanity. And, and I don't know, you know, I don't think you have to be kind of some religious fundamentalist to think, you know, it seems to me this is something that should unite people of all faiths. This is, again, something that the United States of America has done better than almost every other political economy throughout the, the history of the world in allowing people to practice their different faiths without like having, I mean, look, you got in India, there's a lot of bloodshed over religion in other parts of the world. And in, you know, what in, in Bosnia and different, I mean, religion is a, is a problem um, in, in terms of it's part of the killing and so on. In the United States, we have not had that. And, and it doesn't mean that, oh, we've always been perfect. No, that's not the point. The point is, it's fundamentally different. And, and we want, we want to keep it that way. And that's not to snuff out religion. It's to allow its free exercise without the state putting its thumb on the scale. Now, Mr. Brennan had a second sentence that I don't think I agree with, but I thought it was really interesting. Uh, He says, all collective government systems are incompatible with any belief in ensoulment. Uh, Do you have any opinions on the subject? Um, I, I, I take it, um, you know, I, I don't know that it's incompatible, um, but it, it, it seems to be hostile and it seems to not just be hostile in the United States. In other words, uh, this, this problem of, and, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm sidestepping some of that theoretical argument, but what, what jumps out to me is, is you know, it's, it's government is not hostile to religion in the United States of America and everywhere else, everything's hunky-dory. Um, in China, the, the China Nazis are not very fond of any religion. Um, we've seen that in, in Soviet Union was not fond of religion. Um, Hitler 
was, was not very fond of religion. Um, in other places in the world, as we mentioned, um, they might be fond of their own religion, but they will use that religion to try to get people to kill people of other religions. So, um, and that's not, it, and sometimes that's not always the state, but almost always it's connected to the state and uses the state to do that. And, and part of the reason I think in the US and in more communist regimes that, that clamp down on religion as you know, it's the opiate of the masses, but as in a very negative way, as a negative force in society, it's a negative force in their society because the whole idea of totalitarianism, and I sometimes jokingly, but not entirely jokingly, call the United States the freest, most do, uh, democratic totalitarian society in human history meaning that so often our impulse, our government's impulse is totalitarian and to, to enforce kind of totalitarian ideas. And if the public school system is there to smash religion out of people's heads, then that is a totalitarian attempt there. That is the sort of thing that a totalitarian society does. And why does it do it? Well, there are two forces that are stronger than totalitarianism, religion and the family. Those are the bonds that, that we've seen again and again. And, and look, you know, in the comments, if you disagree, suggest some other things, but it seems to me that people have been willing to fight overwhelming evil that, that they knew had more power. I mean, I think of the white rose students in, in, in Germany who were very, strong Christian uh, uh, students who, you know, ended up being executed because they were sending pamphlets around the country saying, you know, Hitler is a satanic force. Um, the communists have always been very anti-religion. And I think they recognize the same thing, that religion is a, a competitor for the complete domination of society by the state. And of course, the family is, you know, uh, if, if the United States government comes between me and my brother or my sister or my mom, um, you know, I can tell you, my mom and my brothers and my sisters are going to come first. And, and so the, the impulse to totalitarianism is, it seems to me, to diminish its enemies. And both religion and the family are an enemy of totalitarian government. I pretty much agree with that. Uh, though I can't look at totalitarian governments, in fact, almost all modern government systems as kind of religions in disguise. That's what statism is to me. It seems to me as totalitary. It's a, it's a, the worship of an implementation of the state as the all-powerful. Yes. Catechism that we grew up with, with define God as omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. And progressives love omnipotent states. The socialists love omnipotent states. And fascists, the same way. And, and of course, socialism sums up fascism because it's national socialism. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting uh, little debate that you got there in the uh, comments section with uh, Mr. Brennan. His comments uh, have been very enjoyable um, through the years, because for years he's, and not, not all the time, but, but uh, when he has a comment, it's, it's, uh, it's worth reading, even, even when you don't agree with it. He's uh, very thoughtful and brings in some perspectives that, uh, that are always helpful. Well, did you have a favorite quote from this week? You know, I 
did. And I, I debated back and forth because I loved Will Rogers. Be thankful we're not getting all the government we're paying for. Um, but the one that spoke out to me, and I actually kind of wanted to, I was thinking before we started, I might bounce it off of you some. Um, but uh, the one by, uh, and I'll, I'll mispronounce his name, but Jose uh, Mahuka, Mahika, the J is an H, I think, but, I'm, but I'm, I have trouble with all the other letters. Um, but, but he says, democracy is old, very old. It is an attitude of man. Democracy is an imminent attitude, but one that has always been in crisis with authoritarianism. And here, I think what he's saying by democracy is not just the election of leaders, but it is the idea that each person has worth. There's a certain individual freedom inherent in democracy because you're saying each individual gets their vote, meaning each individual has worth, is their own person, gets to make their own decision. And that is at odds with authoritarianism from ancient kings to totalitarian communists or, or Nazi governments. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of interesting. It's, it's, uh, I, I knew a guy years ago, Howard Katz, he, he wrote a book called The Money Changers, I think, and, and, uh, and wrote a couple other things. But he told me, he was a Jewish man, uh, and he told me that he thought the Protestant Reformation was the most important event ever in history. Uh, and the reason he thought that is because it led to human freedom in, on a scale beyond anything before that. And, you know, I hadn't made that connection, but he pointed out that once you got past all the Catholic hierarchy and you began to believe that each individual had a relationship with, with God, well, then each individual was equal in a sense and each individual had their own worth and that the king was somehow not greater than the than the serf and it revolutionized society and the more i've thought about it the more i think he's was brilliant and is actually absolutely correct to, about that um and and so in in some ways that's what's being said here that um and that there's always that conflict. And, and I, I like looking at it that way because I always know what side I'm on. And that is the side of democracy, the side of the individual, and against the collective authoritarian state. My issue with uh, so many people who define democracy is they think of it as the mechanism of majority control. Uh, and I don't think that's the primary definition of democracy. That is a mechanism for control of the state. But to me, the primary definition would have to be minority rights, because as soon as you get rid of minority rights, uh, majority control, will, you know, it could be a mob that could be a tyrant. It could be yes. almost anything. And so the mechanism of majoritarianism, in fact, I don't even like majoritarianism. I'm, I'm a super majoritarian. If we have to have a state, I think nearly everything should be done super majoritarian wise. But that's beside the point. To me, they have to be work, work together, that, that idea of some mechanism uh, to control the state away from elites, which is one of your points you like to make all the time. Uh, you've been making it you know, for as long as I've known you. And the other is that minorities have rights and there's some things that democracies can't do. 
you know, majority just can't do anything at once. And that's one of the problems I see right now with the way Americans look at government is that, oh, now our side is one. We get to enact as many things as we want with only our side having input. And when was the, that, that was done basically with Obamacare, the first one major reform that was made, as far as I can tell, in which no a real attempt was made to go across the aisle of the, from the majority to the minority party. And so that idea of just getting as much power, you know, into the state apparatus with your collections, that's that to me, that's the end of democracy. That is that is that is that's where everything goes to haywire. And we're living in the, the results of that, in my opinion. I know of no serious advocate of democracy that doesn't mean by democracy a system of democratic elections, but with a backdrop of fundamental respect for human rights that even majorities and huge majorities cannot do certain things to the minority all the way down to the individual. And, and you know, I, I, think, I think if you envision democracy uh, as anything that the majority votes for goes, um, well, then I can understand why you're scared, <laughs> because I would be scared too, because that's not really any better than Mr. Dictator. Uh, and, and so, but, but that's not, that's the silly concept of it, because that's not what anybody's talking about. And you can try to get everybody to change the way they define democracy, but why not just accept that that's the way people are talking about democracy, because it's, it is universal. Um, I don't know literally anyone except you know a couple you know smart mouth kids or something who say no we should vote on everything economic democracy they used to talk about no one in their right mind is talking about that anymore because it's you know like we're all going to vote on what everyone gets paid and whatever that's that's kind of totalitarianism and i think people even even the the loony left has has moved away from that at least talking about it that way do you know that person the jose Muyaka? i do not he was former president of Uruguay. That is so, so interesting because uh, Uruguay is, it, we had a global forum for, on modern direct democracy there. Uh, very interesting country. Uh, one of the freer countries in, in uh, South America. One of the better governments, I think, as a, as a whole. Uh, however, uh, Montevideo, where the, the event was, had a majority of communists on the city council. And I also learned, which you know didn't seem like the right way to go to me, but I, I don't get a vote. Um, and, but I think in that sort of system, their communist tendencies are not the same as Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, where he's ruling by the, the barrel of a gun. Um, but the other thing I found out when I went to Uruguay was that in the 1980s, uh, with kind of what appeared to be CIA support, certainly alleged to be CIA support. And just between you and me, I suspect the allegations are absolutely true. Um, the CIA kind of supported a, a, a little bit of a coup where they shut down the National Assembly for a couple of years. And that's not the sort of foreign policy that advances democracy and how we ever get people in positions in the State Department or the CIA or the military or the White House who think that you can advance democracy by destroying democratic processes, uh, you know, that's, that's not the way to do it. And um, it's, it's why, 
you know, for years, I've kind of looked at our foreign policy and just thought, you know, look, you can't, you can't spread democracy that way. But of course, they're not trying to spread democracy that way. And the best way to spread democracy would be to protect the democracies, the free societies that exist. And I'm for alliances to do that between free countries to, to have each other's back. Where, where it's reasonable and makes sense, you know, the people have to decide, but I'm, I'm for it um, because I think there are bad players out there, Russia, but especially China, that I think have to be, have, someone has to stand up to them or they will roll over people. Um, but so I, I think you, you, you want that sort of, of, uh, of system. And, uh, and I'm, whatever the other part of that is, I forgot what I was going to say, but I, I think, I think, you know, this, this, spreading of of democracy oh the other part of that is the other part of spreading it is just just to be an example and to and and i think the more that our foreign policy is you know i, I kind of thought before you're not doing it right well they're not trying to do it why not try to do it but try to do it in a, in a way that you're actually getting it in other words you don't launch coups you don't you don't support the dictator because that's obviously not advancing democracy. Instead, you encourage, you trade with, you do everything you can to encourage democracy. You show the example. We're we're free and democratic, so let's stay that way. And and then you also have alliances that help defend people who are free and democratic. Right now, you're as likely to get U.S. support if if you know you've got a kind of a basket case authority, you know, semi-authoritarian or not so semi-authoritarian government, as if you're a free country. And that, that that doesn't make sense to me. I don't think it makes sense to Americans, left, right, or in between, who aren't you know aren't part of the the great elite in Washington. Well, there we go. That was uh, another week. This week in common sense. At this is commonsense.org. Thank you, Mr. Verkel. I appreciate it much.